Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. And a warm welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. I'm awfully glad to welcome to the show Alan Parr. He loves to equip people and teach the Bible. He's an encouragement to anybody who may be frustrated by waiting on God. He says that his life is a reminder that nothing is too hard for God to those who believe. He received his uh, Master of Theology from Dallas Theological Seminary. He adores his wife and his two kids, and he's the host of The Beat on his YouTube channel. Alan, welcome. Hey, Bill. Thank you so much. Um, thank you for having me. I'm so excited to hang out today and have a good conversation with you and your listeners, and uh, just excited to be here. Thank you for having me. Well, you were recommended to me by uh, someone who's a regular on my show, who I respect a great deal, and, and I checked out your YouTube channel, and it was great. Well, thank you so much. I don't know who that was, but I would love to know. Maybe you could tell me offline who that was, but whoever that is, I'm, I'm uh, very thankful that they recommended me. Yeah, I'll spell his name correctly for the sake of the check writing. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So let's uh, let's jump into uh, just what it's like with Christians today. And there's so many people who are, they say they're believers, but they're kind of biblically illiterate. And there is a, a slow fade from uh, true doctrinal Christianity. Yes. Uh, it's, a, it's a problem. I think it's a big problem now. Uh, you know, whenever I was growing up— um, you know, they had Sunday school, and, and uh, you know, there was a lot of biblical sound teaching. And uh, But now I think with the rise of the, uh, I, don't, I don't know if I want to say megachurch movement, but, um, you know, churches are changing quite a bit. And, mm-hmm. you know, there's not as much of a focus anymore on Christian education, Sunday school programs. We're even seeing a huge exodus from pastors actually using the Word of God. Uh, in their sermons, uh, there's a lot of fluff. There's a lot of um, you know stories and illustrations and felt need teaching and things like that. And and so it's not all the fault of the believer as to why there's so many believers that are biblically illiterate. A lot of it, it may fall on the church if it's not a focus of the church to actually train people up in the Word of God. Then we can't expect those who are following uh, to be passionate about it as well. So I think there's an issue there, um, but I also think that, you know, Christians have to take responsibility as well for our faith individually. You know, people from other faiths know exactly what they believe and why they believe it, but oftentimes um, many Christians are just not, uh, it's not a focus point for us to be fully equipped in the Word of God. Mm-hmm. Alan, I know there are, in Scripture, there's four different kinds of descriptions of believers, like a, a non-believer or a baby Christian or worldly Christian. Would you walk us through that? Yeah, sure thing. So the Apostle Paul gives us uh, four, if you will, classes of men. And, um, and so he calls the unbeliever uh, those who are non-spiritual. And he says in 1 Corinthians that, um, you know, those who are not spiritual are not able to discern spiritual things because they are spiritually discerned. So when we try to explain certain things to a non-Christian, 
and we get frustrated whenever they don't understand. We don't need to get frustrated because the Bible says that there are certain things that, um, that they are not going to be able to understand because they can only be discerned through the Spirit. And so you have, uh, you have that class of, 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 uh, of individuals. And then if that individual gets saved, then Paul uh, in 1 Corinthians 3 refers to that individual as a baby Christian. And, um, you know, this is just a Christian. There's nothing necessarily wrong with them. It's, uh, it's not their fault any more than it is the fault of a two-year-old who doesn't know how to do calculus or doesn't know how to add and subtract. It's just the stage in which they are in. They are a baby Christian. They're not expected to know a lot. They're not expected to be a super mature Christian any more than we would expect a, a baby to be able to feed themselves, right, or cook mm-hmm. a dinner or something like that. So you have baby Christians. And then, unfortunately, we have this third category, and I think this is the category that concerns us the most, and that's the, the category of carnal Christians. And Paul talks about carnal Christians as, I would probably say a carnal Christian is a combination of a Christian who remains a baby Christian for far too long. And so this is the proverbial, you know, somebody who is, you know, 10 years old and they're still sucking their thumb and they're still wetting their pants and things like that. I mean, we would look at that person as there's something wrong with them. So a carnal Christian is not only someone who's a baby Christian, but also somebody who's living a fleshly carnal life that for all intents and purposes, you can't really see the difference between their life and the life of a, of a worldly person or a non-spiritual person. And then the final category is uh, Paul refers to these, those who are spiritual or he that is spiritual. And um, it's not for us to point fingers and say, well, you're a baby Christian, you're a carnal Christian, you're a spiritual Christian. But it's just to understand that these are people who are living out a more mature, focused Christian life. Alan Parr is my guest. You can go to alanparr.com to learn more about Alan and his uh, writing and his YouTube channel and his ministries. Um, Alan, I was disturbed when I saw the statistic on one of your videos that 57% of professing Christians believe that there are multiple ways to get to heaven. That's shocking. Yeah, very, very shocking and very disappointing, but I think it's also a clear barometer of where we are as a faith, right? I mean, why is it that so many people who claim to be Christian also, um, you know, believe that there's some other way to get to God. I think it's the problem is that we are allowing oftentimes our worldview to, in, to affect our interpretation of the Bible, which is obviously a very, very big mistake. Mm-hmm. When I um, think of a lot of churches that I know and people who are going to church and they're faithful in their attendance, but like you brought up earlier, I'm concerned about how much discipleship, how much feeding is going on. You know, Jesus said, go make disciples. Um, don't entertain people at church. I think there's a difference. I think there's a huge difference. And it's sad to see that so many Christians have moved so far away from discipleship. And I have the saying that I think that oftentimes we might be focusing more uh, on what Jesus said mm-hmm. and not and not enough on what Jesus did. You know, we love to we love to focus on the parables of Christ and the teachings and the sermons. But what did Jesus actually do? Well, Jesus was busy at making disciples, and that's what he told us to do. And mm-hmm. I think that that's one lost art in the church today. Mm-hmm. As I watched a bunch of your uh, videos, Alan, one thing I walked away with is I thought this man 
fears God, does not fear man. And that made me happy. Um, but there's a lot of people that do fear man today. They fear disapproval. They fear being canceled. They fear all kinds of things that might make them reluctant to be bold in their faith. Yes, definitely. Um, and I think that this is a huge problem for us, uh, is that, um, you, you know, we have a lot of people who claim to be Christian, and they're not doing as Paul said in Romans one sixteen, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation, right? And I think, unfortunately, there's a lot of us that are ashamed. We're afraid. We don't want to be politically incorrect. We don't want to be called intolerant. We don't want to be called a bigot. We don't want to be called any of these things. And so as a result, we kind of shrink back and uh, in fear because we're more concerned about fitting in mm-hmm. and pleasing, pleasing the world and, and, and being acceptable in the eyes of our society than to truly take a stand for what we believe or what we say we believe as a Christian. Yeah. And not to mention how many times in Scripture we are told not to fear. Over and over again, mm-hmm. yeah, we are told not to fear, for God is with us. Yeah, so the, the bold stance we need to take as believers is definitely a challenge for many, many people for the very reason that you just said, Ellen. They, they don't want to be cast aside. They don't want to be cut, uh, kicked out of the club or whatever organization they're in or lose their job or whatever. And yet I think there's never been a time more important than right now than to uh, stand up in boldness for our faith and defend what we believe. And I agree because our faith is being attacked by so many different um, directions. You know, you have cults, you have unbelievers, you have atheists and skeptics, and you have um, other religious organizations that um, are attacking our faith every single day. And it's up to us as believers to take a stand for what we believe and not just what we believe, but our values and our, our behaviors and what's right and what's wrong, things like abortion and the right to life and um, these different things that we see coming up. Christians have to take a stand. Mm -hmm. I was looking at the population of the United States in 1975 to where we are today, and we have a significant uh, growth in population over those last uh, 30-plus years. And I'm thinking there has not only been a lot of people added to this world, but an explosion of evil, because that's what happens when you have more people, you have more evil. Yeah, and this is not surprising. Because, no. You know, the Bible says that in the last times, you know, evil will, will, will occur, and that's one of the big signs of that we're living in the last days. And obviously, we don't know how many days are left before Christ will return, but it's definitely a sign. The Bible says that, you know, all these evil things will happen, and people will be lovers of themselves, and boastful, and disobedient to their parents, and we see all those things playing out in our society right before our eyes. Mm-hmm. Ellen, I am fascinated with uh, your delivery style, your tone, everything you d- you've been doing on your YouTube videos are, is really inviting. So way to go in that department. I want to take uh, just a little break, but when I come back, I want the audience to get to know you just a little bit more. This is your first time on the show, and I- I'd love to hear your testimony. I read a little bit of it on your website, and it's very interesting. So if you don't mind, I'd love to hear a little bit more about you personally. Does that sound okay? That'd be great. Looking forward to it. Terrific. Alan Parr is my guest. You can go to alanparr.com, A-L-L-E-N-P-A-R-R.com. We'll be right back.
I bet at some point you have felt stuck in your uh, spiritual life. Many of us have. Uh, Perhaps you feel like you're going through the motions and that doesn't really feel good. My guest, Alan Parr, his passion is to really help equip believers with tools and training and teaching that they need to live a more victorious life and then fulfill God's purpose for their own life. He can be discovered at alanparr.com, A-L-L-E-N-P-A-R-R.com. And his YouTube is called The Beat. You can go on his YouTube channel. But as a first-time guest on the show, Alan, I'd love for you to tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and and what your story is all about. Yeah, sure thing. So, um, first of all, once again, thank you for having me. I'm honored to be here. My pleasure. Yeah, so I am originally from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and I grew up in a loving Christian home. It's a, a split home. My parents got divorced whenever I was uh, six years old, and uh, thankfully, the Lord got a hold of my life to some degree. Whenever I was eight years old, my father led my sister, uh, said, led me and my sister to the Lord, and um, I didn't really have a strong relationship with God until I was about nineteen or twenty or so. So from the age of eight until nineteen or twenty, I was wasn't necessarily a a uh, rebellious child, but I didn't really read my Bible, didn't really have a sense of um, purpose in my life. And so as a result, made some poor decisions, but never really went too far off the beating track. And it wasn't until college, and this is why I'm so passionate about discipleship. It wasn't until college where someone took the time to actually sit down and disciple me and teach me, um, you know, how to study the Bible, how to live the Christian life, what certain things that I was doing that I shouldn't be doing and why they were wrong, that I really started to take my faith seriously. And so uh, at that point, this was when I was about 20 years old or so. So a couple years after that, I actually um, graduated from college and went on to get a master's degree in electrical engineering. And at that point, I thought I was going to be an engineer. Mm-hmm. And so I went off to Detroit, Michigan to be a engineer uh, for Ford Motor Company, did that for a couple of years. And while I was there, I had the amazing opportunity to teach the Bible for the first time. And it was amazing because with everything I had done in my life, I'd never really felt that I was very clear on exactly what God had created me to do until I started teaching the Bible for the first time. And this was back in 1999. I'll never forget it. And it was in that moment that I knew, wow, this is something that I want to dedicate the rest of my life to doing. And so at that point, I started making plans to go to seminary. At that point, I didn't even know what seminary was. I had never heard of the word before. Um, <laughs> I just, I, I really didn't. All I knew is that some of the people that I was listening to, whether it was uh, Tony Evans or Chuck Swindoll or J. Vernon McGee or David Jeremiah and some of these guys that I still have the utmost respect for, they kept mentioning this place called Dallas Theological Seminary where they all went to school. And I thought, well, wow, this must be a good school if all these guys went to the same school. Well, let me look into it. So to make a long story short, I um, quit my job as an engineer and started working, or excuse me, started um, uh, attending Dallas Theological Seminary in the fall of 2000, graduated in 2004 with my Master of Theology degree, and from 2004 until about 2014, for about 10, 10 11 year stretch there, I was bivocational. I was teaching high school math as well as working part-time at churches because I just couldn't find a full-time church that would get, or the church that would give me a full-time job at that point. So I was always bivocational for mm-hmm. a very long time, still single, not married. And then in 2014, 
I believe it was God himself who gave me this amazing idea to start a YouTube channel. I had no idea what I was doing. had never done any sort of video recording ever in my life. It was all brand new for me. But I wanted to create a platform where I could um, truly express myself and use my gifts and reach more people than just the people in the local church. So I started a YouTube channel, never imagining that it would grow to where it is today. And now here we are eight years later, uh, 826,000 subscribers later, 70 million views later. And I say all that not to boast, but just to talk about how faithful God has been whenever we step out on faith and trust him. And I must throw this in there, obviously, because it's the biggest blessing of them all, is that in 2014, I met the love of my life. So a lot of things happened in 2014. I got the vision for my YouTube ministry. I met my wonderful wife. We got married in 2015. Had our first child 2017, had a second child 2018, and now I'm in ministry full-time, and my wife is in <laughs> ministry full-time as well, so it's just come full circle. Yeah, you are in the zone, my friend. Oh, God has been really, yeah. really gracious. Yeah, and Alan, yeah. Alan, I didn't hear that as a brag. When you're talking about the numbers of subscribers and views, that is a, to God be the glory, because this is something God put in your heart and you are so gifted at communicating, so you get on your YouTube channel and you share the word. So uh, that is to God be the glory. Well, thank you so much, yeah. Bill. I really appreciate yeah. that. I'd love to back up a little bit, though, and hear about when you're 20 years old, uh, the person that invited you into a discipleship relationship. How did that invitation come about? Yes. So um, this was a very interesting because at this point I was dating a young lady and Let's just say we were not dating in a way that would honor God, and none of my friends in college were. We were doing things that college kids do, um, just really weren't, it wasn't, uh, our faith wasn't a focus. Matter of fact, I can remember my freshman year in college, and I only went to church one time my whole freshman year. Wow. I just didn't, uh, you know, I just didn't have a passion for it. it just, you know, I didn't take my faith with me, if you will, to, to, to college. And there was a guy by the name of Deacon Kevin Miller. That's interesting. At the time, we thought he was really old because he was 30 years old, and we were all 18 or 19. We thought he was really old, but now looking back, he was really young. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now, now that I'm 46 years old, I look back and say, he was really young. So, <laughs> yeah. Uh, he decided uh, to come down to our campus every Friday for, I'd say, several months and to do a Bible study with us. And I'll never forget, he taught us the parables of Christ. And I was so fascinated because all these parables that he taught always had some sort of weird type of, under, you know, unlock, some sort of thing that you have to understand to unlock the mystery. And I started becoming fascinated with the parables of Christ and how to understand what Jesus was talking about. And so that's what really sparked my initial hunger to want to read and study the Bible was Deacon Kevin Miller coming down to our campus on a Friday night for several months and just teaching us the Bible. And I will never forget that time. Wow, that's important. Thank you for mentioning his name and giving, uh, pointing, pointing to him and what he did. That's important that listeners hear that. So you, you go to church regularly through high school, and now you go to college and you go once in a year. What excuses did you give your parents? <laughs> well, I don't think my parents knew that I wasn't <laughs> going, to, going to school, or excuse me, going to, going to church. And, uh, you know, I went to church in high school because my parents, well, my mom, I uh, was living with my mom at the time. And, uh, and she, she, she was dead set on taking my sister, uh, taking me and my sister to, to church. And uh, so we went every Sunday, but I, you know, I can't say that I really enjoyed it. It was a traditional Baptist church. We didn't have like 
a youth service with video games and a basketball court and, you know, all these things that the youth have nowadays. We didn't have any of that. We had to go and sit in the adult service and listen to some sermon that didn't really apply to our lives. And that's probably the reason why my passion for church really wasn't there when I went to college. Mm-hmm. Alan, why do you think that there's a, a fair number of pastors, preachers that seem to have watered their sermons down a little bit? I think it's because, um, you know, unfortunately, I think that there's a, there's a huge hunger. There's a lot of hunger out there for what I call the three B's, buildings, bucks, and bodies. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we, we want to build more buildings. And in order to do that, we need more bodies and we need all those bodies to give us more bucks. And we know that if we say certain things that offend people, that they may not come back. If we tell people that you can't shack up, if we tell people that, you know, hey, you need to stay in your marriage because God honors that, um, even if you don't like the person that you're married to, if we tell people that what they really need to hear and not what they want to hear, they might leave. Or they might stay, but they may get offended and say, I don't like that guy. I don't want to give him my money. Mm-hmm. So it's a lot easier to just give people what they want to hear. You're also going to attract more people to your church if you're just preaching a cotton candy, watered-down gospel than if you're preaching the truth. And, uh, and so I think that's a major motivation for, unfortunately. It's unfortunate, but I think that's the age in which which we live. Mm-hmm. I can't remember where I heard this, Alan, but hard preaching equals soft hearts, and soft preaching equals hard hearts. Mm, I'm going to have to write that one down. Yeah, that's good a good one. one. Yeah, so <laughs> you give hard preaching. I remember my pastor 20 years ago said, I'm going to preach through the book of Romans. It'll take about eight months to do. And I assume that at the end of that eight months, probably up to 10% of the congregation will will leave. (laughs) Because you you (laughs) preach the truth and people are going to feel offended and they're going to leave. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I'll I'll add one one more thing. I think that we're living in a day now where we need, uh, you know, people tend to want more to keep their attention Right. Than just the good old fashioned Bible. You know, it used to be we just preach the Bible yeah. verse by verse, expository preaching, and that works for most people. But now you gotta bring cars on stage, you have to have <laughs> props, you have to have all these different things. Yeah. And and if you don't have those things, then people can quickly tune out, which is very, very sad. Yeah. Well keep up the outstanding work. I, I do enjoy your, your videos. There you do a great job and I'm gonna encourage my audience to go check them out. Uh is there just YouTube Alan Parr, and we'll get right to the beat, huh? Yes, if they go to, uh, if they just go to any uh, browser and open up YouTube and search for um, Alan Parr, the beat, yep, my channel, along with a whole bunch of other videos will pop up. And Perfect. Be right there. Perfect. I think that's how I did it. Alan, thanks so much for doing the show. Have a great rest of the day. Thank you so much. My pleasure. You bet. Alan Parr has been my guest. You can head over to alanparr.com. Check out him and his uh, great work on YouTube. We'll take a short break and be right back. We are not only at the end of 
the week, but we are at the end of our study of the book of John with Dr. Greg Headington. Today is going to be our last lesson, and fortunately, when this concludes, we're going to jump into a brand new series in First and Second Peter. Just to let you know, I'm excited. I just signed him to a seven-year, $32 million contract. Is that all? Yeah, well, yeah, only half of that sentence was true. <laughs> oh, okay. Some, some's guaranteed, I guess. <laughs> you okay. can guess which part isn't, isn't true. <laughs> well, we love, uh, we love having you on the show. We love your teaching, and uh, we love everything about what you do. We love your style, and we love your delivery, and listeners absolutely love Dr. Greg Heddington. So we're glad to have you uh, do the show, and we're so thrilled that we're now at the last segment of, our book of uh, the book of John. Let's get to it. Well, Bill, thanks. Welcome to our first, our final, excuse me, lesson in the Gospel of John. This one's called Glorifying God and Everlasting Life. Let's recall that John was one of the 12 apostles, and he's referred to in Scripture as the disciple whom Jesus loved. I will include some verses from Ephesians 2 in the lesson, but first, I will give uh, two summations of the last verses of chapters 20 and 20 from John. The first summation is John 20, verse 31, when John writes, These things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Now, John is, at heart, an evangelist, and that's why the church refers to him as John the Evangelist. His goal is for people to understand the truth about Jesus, to know he's the Son of God, and thereby experience life in its fullness as God intends for all of us to do. The second summation is the very last verse of the Gospel, chapter 21, verse 25, which says, Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself would not contain the books that could be written. Well, that's probably a bit of hyperbole from John, but the point he's making is clear. All that Jesus accomplished is without limits, in its magnitude for the salvation of humankind as eternal Son of God through his incarnation, life, death, resurrection, and ascension. Now, John carefully selects the words and works of the Lord that's in it, that are in his gospel that he hoped would lead his readers to faith. And after hoping to lead them to faith, he wants his readers to become a part of the movement he himself had joined, which was called the Followers of Jesus, who will serve the Lord until their dying breath. Now, we can sum up the Gospel of John like this. It's about what John said regarding Jesus, what Jesus said about himself, the seven miraculous signs Jesus performed, and many of the prophecies Jesus fulfilled. I know that's a lot to write down, but you may have to even go over this uh, talk one more time. Well, what I'd like to talk about now is that so that this might mean something for us, I want to reflect on some of the thoughts from the book, Gentle and Lowly. So if you are taking notes, Roman number one, how is God glorified? In 1647, an assembly of the Protestant churches in England met together to define what the various churches in the Reformed tradition believe, and they composed the two Westminster Catechisms. The Westminster Shorter Catechism is a series of questions and answers with the intention that all members of those churches would know and still do and still do today exactly what the church believes. The best known statement with which many people are familiar today is the very first Q&A question which asks this, what is the chief end of man? Now you could say humankind as well since 
it is referring to all humans. So what is the chief end or purpose of all humans? Great question. The answer to that question is this. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Mm. Exactly. Very important answer. Yep. And that is our aim, our purpose, so that he, uh, we can function as God wants us to function. I mean, after all, a car functions properly if it runs on gasoline rather than orange juice, and a Tesla runs better on a battery rather than banana peel. So the way we function best is when we glorify God. Excellent. Okay, so Roman number one asks the question, how is God glorified? And Roman number two gives us one of the answers, which is Roman number two, we can glorify God. Well, how do we glorify him? The answer is through obedience to him, even though we know we will often fail. As 1 Peter 2.12 says, conduct yourself honorably so others may see your good deeds and glorify God. Now, some people think that they can go through the emotions of acting honorably to please God and hopefully get their ticket punched and go to heaven. It's kind of a crude way to say, but that's the way some people think about it. But until we understand how truly loved we are by God, then we will not understand why we would want to be obedient and turn away from the emptiness of sin. Now, sin can be fun or we wouldn't do it. Sin can be great, but sin will always eventually bring shame and separation from self, from others, and from God. The world, of course, operates very differently than the way God intends for us to operate. The world operates on what? Shame, anger, fear, violence. If we ever have questions about that, all we've got to do is look at the media, look at the news, look at the paper. But Christ's followers operate on grace, forgiveness, love, and oneness. We focus on the truth of the results that the cross brings us. The Holy Spirit is in us, actually in us as a follower of Jesus, to empower and guide and grow us into what we are ultimately to become, which is to honor God and others. Then we we hope that we will be able to meet a need for others rather than a greed for ourselves. Let me say it again. We hope we'll be able to meet a need for others rather than a greed for ourselves. And we don't have to look to anyone or anything else for a purpose because it's already in us right now through the Holy Spirit. The world continues to look for salvation and authenticity and purpose, and they think it's got to be something new. It always fascinates. It fascinates me that people are thinking, what's new, what's new, the old must be bad. No. What we have has been right in front of everyone for 2,000 years, the truth of Jesus. Now, why would we desire to be obedient to God? Well, because we've received his healing power And we want to pass it on to others to empower them through the Holy Spirit with the truth of God's mercy and favor and forgiveness. Even in our brokenness, we still feel his love and grace. People have tried for centuries to follow God's laws to please him. But ultimately, the purpose of God's laws is what? Well, one answer is to show us that we are not able to follow them, but Don't be discouraged. God is not mad. We are sinners, and we don't always do it right. And, in fact, that's the way it is. But, in fact, cheer up, because we are actually 
much worse than we think we are. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) But cheer up. God's grace is much greater than we can ever imagine. Amen. I love that old Amy Grant song, which says, being good is just a fable. I just can't because I'm not able. I'm going to leave it to the Lord. So that's why we need a Savior. We will never live life perfectly. And we discover that the more we know Jesus, the more we are aware of our sin, and the more thankful we are that he has forgiven us. So we can glorify the Lord by being imperfectly obedient to him. Again, imperfectly obedient. Now, nothing is more glorious on earth than a person who loves people, shares the good news with others, and by their actions and words, they become the gospel. They show the truth. They tell the truth. We all know elementary school, at least it was for me. We would show something, then we'd tell about it. Mm-hmm. Could have been a flattened toad by a <laughs> by a car out on the street, but we would show it, then we'd tell about it. So we show our lives, we express the love of Jesus, and then we tell about it. So to serve others and share the gospel is one way we glorify God. The second way that God can be glorified is when, Roman numeral three, God glorifies himself. Look at the words of the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 2, which you might want to read later. In chapter 2, Paul tells us that ever since Adam and Eve rebelled against God, we have entered the world at birth spiritually dead. Now, as cute as little babies look, they have already been tainted with the sin of their very first parents. And when I say the first parents, we're going back to Adam and Eve. So we are born sinful already. We are physically alive, but spiritually dead, and there's nothing a dead person can do to help themselves out. We were cursed by the prince of the power of the air, also known as Satan, and we're enslaved to following a life of selfishness, and there's nothing by ourselves we can do about it. No matter how hard we try, no matter how many programs we read, self-help programs, it doesn't matter. We are enslaved by ourselves and our own sin. But then, verse 4, Ephesians 2, we read about the greatest reversal in the history of the world. Here it is. Here is that statement which you're all going to want to read later on your own. Ephesians 2, verses 4 to 7. And what a sentence. It is also giving the ultimate reason for our salvation. Think of it. So here we are today, the same predicament as all humans born into a spiritual, powerless life without any ability as a spiritually dead person to do anything to escape our imprisonment. And now, verse 4, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and sealed with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Wow, what a statement. Wow, no kidding. So, so here's a question. What is the goal of unending eternal life, which believers will have one day in the new heaven and new earth? The goal is, as Ephesians 2, 7 says, so that in the coming ages, speaking of eternity, God might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward, toward who? 
God wants to show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness to us. And the last three words of the verse are, in Christ Jesus. Mm -hmm. Now imagine that. That is how God glorifies himself, by showing grace to us who would who would ever put those two things together? Our sinfulness ultimately results in his grace. And you go, you've got to be kidding. No, it's true. And God is never surprised when we sin. And he still gives us his grace. So to review, Roman number one asks the question, how is God glorified? There's two ways. Roman number two, we can glorify him by, as 1 Peter 2.12 says, conduct yourself honorably so that others may see you, your good deeds, and glorify God. The second way God is glorified, Roman numeral three, is when God glorifies himself by showing grace to us through Jesus and his death, even though we did not ask for it. Now, think about that in Romans 5, 8. While we were yet sinners, what happened? Christ died for us. It's almost too good to be true, but it is true. It's God's grace. Mm -hmm. And one last thing before the break, Bill, I want to mention, grace in the, the original Greek literally means surprise gift, surprise gift. And what a gift it was to receive God's grace. How are we doing on time there, Bill? Yeah, we're doing good. We should probably take a break. And before we go to break, Greg, I'm curious if you recall the grade you got during show and tell with the flattened frog. You know, uh, that was a big hit. Anything that involves squishy animals, uh, the, the slimier the better. I, I do remember. Did you remember that? Oh, yes. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. All right, let's take a little break. Dr. Greg Heddington is our guest. We're concluding our study on the book of John, but there's exciting news ahead. And we're going to go into First and Second Peter next. back and we are concluding our study of the book of John with Dr. Greg Heddington and we are um, kind of sad that it's ending but we're excited that we're going to start with first and second Peter next time we meet so Greg let's uh, spend our last 10 minutes or so concluding our study on the book of John okay great Bill you know this is our uh, subject is called today glorifying God and everlasting life it's really what does this all mean everything that John's been writing about what does this mean to us and so at this point, we are in Roman numeral four, if you're taking notes, heaven and everlasting life. For the past few weeks, we've talked about the resurrection and the apostles, and now we're talking about, number one, what heaven and eternal life mean, number two, how God can be glorified, and number three, we're seeing the heart of Jesus in all of this. So here we are today, just ordinary people although some of us think of ourselves as a little bit better than ordinary. After all, some of our mothers told us we were special. <laughs> well, I don't know if your mom told you that, but I my mom re- told me that. Yeah. God but, bless our moms. But, yeah, and here we are, making our way through life, sinning and suffering, wandering off and returning sometimes, regretting the past, anxious about the future. But you know, so many times we forget 
that we are in Christ, and that has to do with eternal life. And from these four verses in Ephesians 2, let's consider what we're being liberated into with special attention to verse 7, which says, quote, So that in the coming ages God might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Now, just to be clear, what exactly does that mean for those of us who are in Christ? Well, if you've read the Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis, if you haven't, I strongly recommend it. Seven little books written for children, but actually as you get older, you really enjoy them more. In it, in, if you've read the Chronicles of Narnia, what it means is that one day God is going to walk us through the wardrobe and into Narnia, and we will stand there paralyzed with joy wonder, astonishment, and relief. And even if you've not read the Chronicles of Narnia, it means that as we stand before God, we will not be scolded for the sins of this life. We will never be looked at hesitantly and never be told, better enjoy this, but remember, you don't deserve this. No, the very point of heaven and eternity, according to verse 7, is to enjoy his grace and kindness. And if the point of heaven is to show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness, then we are secure because the one thing we fear that would keep us out of heaven, which is our sin, can only increase God's demonstration of his grace and kindness. I know some of this is hard to believe. That's why I'm trying to say it slowly. The cross means our sinful failures are no longer an obstacle to enjoying heaven. In fact, the forgiveness of our sins is the key to enjoying heaven. Whatever mess we have made of our life, that's part of our final glory. Those regrettable things we have done, or the malevolent things that have happened to us, which may have sent our life into a tailspin, that is where Jesus becomes more real than ever in this life and even more wonderful to us in the next. As for those of us who have lived a fairly righteous life, we'll get to heaven and realize more than ever before how deeply sin and self-righteousness and pride and rebellion were down inside of us, and how all those things, of all things, sent God's grace in kindness, soaring without limits, as he continues to express how great is his heart for us. Now, again, we are talking about the heart of Jesus. Because as Ephesians 2.7 says, since his grace in kindness is immeasurable, then our failures can never outdo, can never overpower his grace. Our moments of feeling utterly overwhelmed by life are where God's heart is. You'll have to read this just to check me out on this, since his grace and kindness is filled with immeasurable riches, then our sins can never exhaust his love for us. It's incredible. On the contrary, the more weakness and failure we exhibit, the more his heart goes out to us. Now, this is the best news we'll ever hear in our life. Yes, of course we repent. We do confess our sin and our weakness. That is certainly part of the process. And then in Paul's letter to the Corinthian church, he admits how he fails and is weak in following his Lord. But then God answers Paul and says this 
in Second Corinthians twelve nine, credible verse, God says, My grace is sufficient for you because my power is made perfect in what? In weakness. Mm-hmm. What a statement from our Lord. And then Ephesians two seven does not just say the immeasurable riches of his grace, but the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness. Some people just think God's mad at him. No, this is from the, the words of God, the word of God. The Greek word for kindness means a desire to do what is in our power to prevent discomfort in another. It's the same word used in Matthew 11, verse 30, where Jesus says, my yoke is easy. In other words, Jesus says, my yoke is kind. Now, the key part of verse 7 is the last three words, which are in Christ Jesus. I mean, what a verse this is. He sends himself and his grace personally, individually, eternally, not just in the abstract, but it's Jesus himself. That's why Paul immediately adds at the end of the verse, in Christ Jesus. By the way, the fact that we are in Christ Jesus is mentioned more often in Scripture than the words Christ in us. But, of course, they're both true, and they're both important. Now, speaking of being in Christ Jesus, are we aware of what is true of us if we are in Christ? Those who are in union with him are promised that all our brokenness, that infects everything, and many of us do not even want to remember the way we've sometimes treated others in the past, but all of our brokenness in every relationship, every conversation, every family member, every abuse, every email or letter, every job, every interaction, all brokenness, everything will one day be salvaged. And the implication of verse 7 is that the more darkness and pain we experience in this life, the more resplendent and relief we will experience in our next life. Roman numeral five on the subject of hell. Okay, I know that's an abrupt switch. Or is it ever? (laughs) (laughs) Where'd that come from? Well, we've got to have a little equal time. We've been talking about heaven. I want to make a brief comment about hell because I get that question a lot. People will say, I don't know about Bill, uh, about you, but I've had people come up and say, I'm afraid I might go to hell. Or suppose I do something really bad and God decides to send me to hell. Well, that's a lot of pressure and tension to live with. So let me give you one sentence that I hope you will remember for the rest of your life. And it sums up what Scripture says. Here it is. Ready to write it down? Put yep. it in your mind indelibly. Yep. God sends no one to hell. I'm going to say that again. God sends no one to hell. Yes, there is a hell, and every person has a choice to make. And if someone chooses to live life on their own terms and shows no interest in a relationship with God in this life, then it would not make sense that when that person dies, that God would say, you showed no interest to me when you lived, but now you must follow me for eternity. As you've heard me say many times before, Scripture says God is sovereign over all things, yes, and he gives us freedom to make our own choices on earth. And I think that's all that needs to be said about hell right now. Yeah, I think that's a good point. All right. So, Roman numeral six, it's all about Jesus, and I want to end this lesson with this. It's a quotation from the Reverend Dick Howerson, who is not only the chaplain of the U.S. Senate, but also 
the renowned pastor of Fourth Presbyterian Church in Bethesda, Maryland, for 23 years. And I had the great privilege of spending some time with Dr. Halverson when he lived in D.C. So here's what he said. Here's Dick Halverson's words. Quote, Jesus is not religion. Jesus Christ transcends all religions. Judaism, Islam, Buddhism, Hinduism. He is greater than all, including Christianity. Religions are the inventions of mankind. The definition of religion is humans searching for God. Religions may begin with a great leader in mind, Moses, Jesus, Muhammad, Buddha, but human tradition soon reduces the original to the barest of ethical standards and a dead letter of the law which no one can follow. The original sin was and still is the human choice to be one's own God, to control one's life, to be in charge, to be religious. Rising out of this choice, religion evolved into many humankind's attempts to please God. But Jesus transcends religion because he is the incarnation of all that is true and good and loving and tender. So Jesus does not want you to become a new uh, Christian. He wants you to become a new creation. There's a huge difference yeah. between the two. Fantastic study, Greg. Thank you so much for uh, investing and spending the time and teaching us. We so appreciate it. My pleasure. You bet. Dr. Greg Heddington has been my guest. We'll take a short break and be right back with our two. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.